And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully you had a great weekend. Uh, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. And for the rest of you savages, hopefully you uh, you called your mother. I mean, you know, hopefully you're all uh, decent enough humans to uh, visit your mother on Mother's Day. If you didn't, what's wrong with you? Stop what you're doing right now and call your mom. She's probably a very nice lady. Or not, but it's still Mother's Day. Give her a call. Don't be a dick. Uh, yeah, so a lot to get to today. As always, I was joined by my friend Nate Madden from Blaze TV. Uh, we talked all kinds of stuff. We talked the dysfunction going on right now in Congress. Um, we talked uh, briefly about Game of Thrones, which was interesting because uh, Nate is not up to date on Game of Thrones. Um, we talked uh, about the trade war brewing right now with China. Uh, we touched on a lot of stuff. We talked uh, over some some new polling data coming out of South Carolina that was very interesting. So yeah, a, a lot to get to. I'm sure you guys will enjoy it. It's always good talking to Nate. Um, first, follow us on Twitter at NoGimmicksPod. Tweet at us. We always tweet back. And if you haven't already, guys, please subscribe. You got to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play. If you're on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate that. All right. Without further ado, here is my chat with Nate Madden. All right, guys, we're here with Nate Madden from The Blaze. Nate, thanks so much for coming on, my brother. Thanks for having me, man. How's your Monday going? Oh, it's going. It's going. I almost forgot to hit record at the beginning of this podcast, so it's going about that well. Um, so before we jump into uh, the news of the day, you're someone who does not watch Game of Thrones. You're not up to date with Game of Thrones. So I'm going to ask you a specific question about last episodes, last episode of Game of Thrones. The audience always gets pissed because I give spoilers. So I don't think we're in danger of any of that. Um, no. So what do, what do you make of Daenerys Targaryen going full Stalin last night? I mean, I, I feel like her descent into madness is complete. Your thoughts? Okay, so I haven't watched Game of Thrones, but I've watched Game of Thrones reactions for years, and I will say from what I've been, and I watched the first three seasons, it wasn't really my, my kind of thing, but uh, um, after watching, you know, all the reactions, everything, and like what I've gathered from memes and stuff, this, like, first off, this season makes no damn sense. Like, even from like a, like a fourth party observer, this makes absolutely no damn sense whatsoever. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense, and I, I assume it makes absolutely no sense at all for somebody who hasn't watched past season three. I mean, that is... Yeah. I mean, I assume all but a couple of the characters you'd recognize are dead. So that's yeah, probably except for except for the the chick when I left her off. She was just walking at it. She was walking naked with dragons all over out of a, out of a big fire. I remember that. You'll have that. Yeah, you will have that in the show. Yeah, I, I will say uh, there was no regard for the Geneva Conventions last night or the season in general. I mean, there's just war crimes across the board. It is uh, the Geneva Conventions are not being obeyed. I mean, somebody needs to go to jail for this. I mean, come on. What is it? Stalin always said, "Kill a million." It's just a statistic. <laughs> yeah, I think they're, they're probably well over a million at this point. Yeah. But all right. So let's let's get into the news of the day. Um, this trade war with China is heating up right now. Uh, new tariffs yep. went into effect over the weekend. There's two schools of thought behind behind Trump's tariffs. One, and this is the more Trump Trumpster Trump team kind of 
kind of frame of mind is that Trump is just playing tough guy with President Xi of China. Uh, he knows that China has more to lose than we do if, if a deal doesn't get done, which is true. I mean, China does have more to lose than we do right now. Uh, and, and Trump's just being tough guy, negotiator, trying to break President Xi, trying to make Xi give up some concessions on this new deal. Um, the other school of thought is that Trump has been talking about these damn tariffs for 35 years. <laughs> he seems to really like tariffs. Uh, if he keeps saying how much he likes tariffs, maybe we should believe him and maybe he's not playing 4D underwater upside down chess or anything like that. So, like, where do you come down on this? And, uh, yeah, for, first of all, where do you come down on, on the, the Trump tariffs generally? I mean, I, I think tariffs are a great means of exacting pressure when you're trying to find more favorable bilateral trade agreements. And I think like bilaterals, bilaterals can tend to be more beneficial to the country working them out than these multilaterals where you end up with zones that end up, you know, with 50,000 different pe people trying to order one pizza. Um, just, just as a broad overreaching sense. And yeah, like th there's some, there's some merit to the whole thing that, that you know, Donald Trump has been, <laughs> Donald Trump's been a protectionist on a personal level. I mean, almost as long as he's been in real estate, let's face that right. fact. Right. Um, but, you know, like I, I've been watching this story as, as it's unfolded out throughout the last week and as the tariffs went into effect Friday. And I've got a uh, write up, uh, another write up about that situation, a, a couple of write ups, one on the blaze, one on conservative review. But you have to look at the timeline that happened here. So initially you had the reports that China was trying to back out of this and renegotiate. It seems all reports from even like the mainstream media guys, they even come out and just acknowledge it like, look. Xi and Beijing just came out of left field on this thing and tried to renegotiate almost every damn aspect of this draft trade negotiation. And so the president responds by throwing some tweets, which is what is usual, like DEFCON 1 escalation. Um, or, you know, it goes from DEFCON 1 to DEFCON 2 by tweeting. And so he sends that up, and then there's no reciprocity on that. They're still holding out, apparently, according to the reports. I mean, we have – and the the Chinese state government says, like, look, we don't want to back down on this. They even said in a state uh, state television a statement that look, you're not going to get the the concessions that you want from us. So it's it's a two sided deal, uh, at least just from the way that this particularly came up. And to show that to show the Chinese that we're that the U.S. is not going to back down and let them completely write this trade agreement for themselves, he enacted he he threatened and then he followed through on the threat. So now we're in a situation where we're about to see a bunch of stuff at Walmart get a whole lot more expensive. That's what happened in these situations, but it is ultimately going to hurt. Chinese manufacturers more than it's going to hurt Americans who have relatively less cheap stuff to buy at Walmart. Right. I, I, I think I agree with that. What's been interesting to me, though, is a lot of people um, on the right, Mark Levin and others, um, who've kind of like what you're saying, too. And I, I agree with it, that tariffs can be a means to an end. Right. Yeah. Especially in the, in this negotiating process. It's obviously very complicated. These kind of threats can be good, but a lot of people on the right, the Trumpster type right, like Mark like Mark Levin and some others, are have kind of gone from like, okay, maybe these tariffs are necessary right now in the interim, to tariffs are good and this is a good long term strategy. Or something. Now, I, I will that, dispute that. that. That's not Mark's position on that. It's not okay. Well, no, explain no. explain Levin's position. I, I read up a little bit on it, but so, I mean, that, that is the position. Sort of... That is the position of some on the right, which has been fascinating to me. I, I maybe I shouldn't have called yeah. it Levin. Yeah. Specifically, well, it's just because but... I. I wrote up his position this morning for conservative review in a, in a oh, post. Oh, okay. But, all right. All right. So, so it's more take like, us through it. Take us through it. So it's it's it, he's still a means to an end guy. Um, okay. In a, a situation that's almost completely devoid of, of other like human rights um, situations. So and human rights considerations, he kind of threw that into his discussion on China too. That shows that you know it, we're not just 
talking about our trading partners like Canada, Mexico, the UK, and others. We talk about China in this specific instance. Part of the calculus, not necessarily saying that every human rights violation later needs to lose trading status uh it's all dependent on the particular situation but that is also part of the calculus for how you deal with adversary adversarial trading partners who are adversarial on a rival national security level when they're also committing you know pretty widespread human rights violations like locking up millions of uyghur ethnic minorities at one time you know when they're creating like social you know that like china is a very very bad actor and they want to run the world and we tend to forget that because they give us cheap tennis shoes um but that's something else that goes into that calculus but as far as as far as like mark specific it's 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 a means to an end um and you know it's an easier it's an easier means to use when you're talking about somebody who wants to dominate you globally but sell you cheap sneakers in the process right i have a a couple the the two things that bother me about the tariffs aren't obviously it could hurt the if the trade war is not resolved quickly, it could hurt in the short term the American economy a little bit. It's going to hurt the Chinese economy a hell of a lot more. Obviously, they have a lot more to lose than we do. But it, yes, it will hurt people's oh, yeah. bank accounts a little bit. Less cheap shit, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the two things that that bother me anytime tariffs come up, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican in office, is one just the old adage that not that we're heading towards a hot war with China or anything like that. I mean that that's just not going to happen. But uh, the whole, you know, if goods cross borders, armies don't. And that and that's not always true. Look at World War One. I. I mean, <laughs> you know, all these countries are trading with each other and they started shooting at each other for no yeah. reason anyway. So it's not necessarily true. But in a general rule throughout human history, that is true. When goods cross borders, armies don't. So that that's one. And two, we're, the, the most damaging thing, in, in my estimation, would be seeding ground economically to the socialists in the democratic party because tariffs are a left-wing idea it's it's a left-wing tactic uh, the idea that you know uh, like everything else that, that the left believes you can spend your way to prosperity you can tax your way to prosperity you can tariff your way to prosperity and when the democratic party is being overrun by marxism <laughs> I, it sucks that we have republicans in office that are kind of seeding this ground to the Democrats, to the socialist left, even if it is, or even if it might be necessary in the short term. Do you, do you understand my concern there? Oh, yeah. It's like, especially just how wildly far to the left the Democrats are becoming. I mean, I want to stand against their economic policies at every turn. And this is, I think it's dangerous to cede any ground economically to the left right now. Right. I mean, it- Depends on how you view, how we're viewing the word liberal in that case. I mean, I, I honestly didn't come prepared to have like a whole discussion on the like the Jefferson versus so the Jefferson versus um, probably Adams view on trade as it related to the early republic and who embraced that and whatever and you know like but it is something to be cautious about. It is a mentality that uh, that is a pretty easy one for for otherwise liberty oriented people to kind of fall into right. when. It, you know, it's it's like any other tool. When you pick up a hammer and you use that hammer too long and too much, everything turns uh, turns into a nail. But if it all depends on what you're, it, it is a means, right? If it's an end unto itself, then you're you're going to create a whole another set of problems under the idea that you can just you can just tear it yourself into prosperity. Um, but as a means, you just have to make sure that you don't turn everything into a nail when you're holding the hammer. Right. No, I agree with that. Yeah. And- and then to the yeah. to the the free market absolutists, which I, I kind of am myself, but the, you know the scare the, the intense language isn't 
just I mean, I, I was told all weekend that I was going to check my stocks this morning and they were going to, you know, like this, the, the Dow was going to be a disaster and my portfolio would be half of what it was on Friday. And of course, that did not happen. So, I mean, everything's completely fine right now. I, I, it's definitely nothing to panic about at this point. I just wanted to, it, you know, voice a couple concerns. I'm not panicked or anything like that. But, you know, ho- hopefully, hopefully you're right. Hopefully this is a means to an end and hopefully it gets resolved quickly. Um, obviously, so, and like you said, negotiating a deal with China is a hell of a lot more complicated than negotiating with Mexico and Canada. Just the nature oh yeah, of, of negotiating with a communist country is going to be inherently much more difficult. Yeah, they're not. Yeah, we're ta- not talking about a regionally hegemonic communist totalitarian <laughs> like quasi like quasi genocidal dictatorship here. Right. We're t- like, like it's that, that's what that's what we're dealing with when we're dealing with China. Absolutely. So let's change gears here for a second. Um, right. Rashida Tlaib, our favorite communist anti-Semitic uh, representative from the Detroit area, said on a Yahoo News podcast this weekend, uh, some more wildly evil anti-Semitic nonsense, uh, saying, quote, she has a calming feeling when she thinks about the Holocaust because, quote, my people, meaning Palestinians, provided a place for the Jews to go post-Holocaust. And then she went on to, in the same interview, went on to attack the Jews and said that, you know, the, they stole Palestinian lands and stuff like that. And then she also went on in the same interview. It wasn't even a long interview. I mean, she really packs it into a short amount of time here. Um, how she endorses a one-state solution with the Israelis and Palestinians, which would, of course, mean the genocide of all Jews living in the Middle East. So um, latest round of evil from, from this crazy bitch. Uh, your thoughts? I mean, holy smokes, dude. Even for uh, her, know, like, man. When you read it even lot, for her. It's... <laughs> it's it's one thing to read it on a screen as you're going about your daily, but have somebody actually like read it out loud. You're gonna get yeah. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking like, can they not find a competent communications consultant that can hack through all of this like apparent all of this just rancidly apparent bias in the way they say things so they don't say crap like I get a warm fuzzy feeling when i talk about the holocaust like like i understand i see where you were trying to go with this i see the image that you're trying to create kind of but at the same time you gave them the quote and then you blame the jews for taking your land you're just relitigating it but you're trying to be warm and cuddly while you relitigate the same stuff over and over again good grief i can see the vein coming out here i guess i got that after i became a dad i don't know but Man, even for her, this is ridiculous. And that's, I mean, yeah. we, we shouldn't be surprised, Nate, at this point, right? I, yeah. But for some reason, every week, I still am. Like, because I just, I don't know, maybe I'm such an optimist. I believe that, you know, this level of evil doesn't exist in our government, but I'm wrong yet again. Well, I, you, know, you, you know what? You're looking at two members of Congress who represent their constituencies. You know, members of Congress are elected to represent their constituencies. And you know what? Ilhan Omar represents the the, the population that she re- that she represents in Minneapolis. And you know what? In the Dearborn, like Detroit area, Rashida Tlaib does a really damn good job of representing her district there. Yep. Um, I, live, I live 30 minutes from Dearborn. I've been there a lot. And that is accurate. That is an accurate it's like that, that. That's that's the thing, and like this is what's going to happen. You know, this is what this is an elective body. You know, the the House is a majoritarian body that is supposed to represent this full, full picture of the United States. And you know what? 
when you have congressional districts where a lot of people hold views similar to this, you're going to get members of Congress who hold these views. And, you know, and, you know, like we, how quickly we forget about Keith Ellison. The, the reason, like, we didn't see Keith Ellison in the paper as much is because when he was young and green and saying things, no one was paying as much attention to him. Maybe, you know, maybe, you know, conservative media should have paid a better job of paying more attention to him. But over time time he became a better politician and was better able to say things without saying he felt warm and fuzzy about the holocaust right and that's not to say he's still you know he, he like he was still on a pogo stick in a minefield half the time with the with the, with the junkie would say when he was in congress but you know that stuff ultimately never brought him down the relationship with farrakhan never brought him down it was the me too stuff right it was the it was it was the the abuse allegations against his girlfriend that made him go into made him you know go really 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 quiet for a while and he's still I mean, he's, 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 he's quiet the, yeah the ag of minnesota so he's yeah, the he, attorney general of, of minnesota like and if he didn't have that against him he'd be a much much more vocal attorney general we all know that right but hey, honestly it, i think this is a reflection of i'm sorry you know i was just gonna say he's at least an intelligent enough human being to keep his mouth shut sometimes i mean i think you're right. absolutely right it's just and astounding. that's exactly what we're talking about he eventually learned how to be a politician and even if he does hold these views and even if he does represent people who hold these views and even if, if he does go to fundraisers with the council on american islamic relations with people who hold these views and have ties to various organizations in the middle east he knows how to cover them up at least 80 percent of the time <laughs> and that's really like this is all we're seeing now is just keith ellison without the varnish it's because they think you know running their mouth and saying all this unpolished stuff is to their benefit when it really just helps paint a more vivid picture of the thing that People are going to be running against in 2020. That is just the insane, the far left creep of the Democratic Party. I was going to say, I was going to say, look, Tip O'Neill, you know, Democratic <laughs> Speaker of the House in the 80s, would have kicked this woman out of Congress. But you know what? Nancy Pelosi, yeah. Nancy Pelosi, five years ago would have kicked this woman out of Congress. She would, really, yeah. really. I mean, I think she she would have kicked her ass to the curb five years ago. Why can't the Democrats yeah. do it? I, I, do you think they, they're ever going to regain any kind of morality in their caucus? Are they ever going to grow the stones to purge some of these literally satanic people from, from their, their caucus in, in the House? Like, Do these people wake up and ever realize, like, look, my agenda and the devil's agenda are virtually— yeah, like, this, is like, this is absolutely insane, man. Like, Nancy Pelosi five years ago would have put an end to this. Even politically speaking, if she wants to maintain control of the House, she would do. She would be very wise to kick these people out, at least to censure them, you know, at least kick them off of their committee appointments, at the very least, or you know, at the very least, endorse a primary challenge or something like that. Why can't they do it? Are they ever going to grow the balls to be able to do something like that? So one, I mean, when we talk about morality, that you know, if 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 all things are relative, then everything becomes like Democrats are doing a very good job of of trying. To put things in moral language, right? Like there's a moral imperative to healthcare for to government-run healthcare, and a moral imperative to overregulated internet via net neutrality. And there's a, there's a moral imperative to damn near everything that we want there to be a moral imperative to, right? We're, we're just working off, you know, we're working off this high and lofty language. We're talking about completely different worldviews here, and this is what we talked about before on the show. These are these are just two completely contrasting worldviews here in America that are at odds with each other. Um, right. and that's the thing and look i get back to their shifting demographics and you know what used to the the attitudes that you would usually 
really only run into at a Students for Justice in Palestine anti-Semitic event on campus five years ago. No, this is this stuff's breaking and bubbling into the mainstream. And it's pushing the Overton window, at least for the Democratic Party, further and further to the left. And it's just like we've seen with everything else, right? You know, you would you you don't really you, you never really ran into that many avowed socialists uh, on the American political scene. Now you've got one that's a member of the House that's a superstar with their own Netflix documentary. That's where the needle's moving. That needle keeps moving. And so you can't reprimand people who are just at the forefront of an Overton window shift, right? Like the, the, they're. They're having a John Birch Society moment like the like the right had um, back in the 60s. And they're they're that's a really very good point. The that, that's, a, that's a very like good point. they're having they're having their John Birch Society moment and they're not and they're not birching out the birchers. Let's say the GOP packages all of this and beats the Democrats over their ever loving heads with it. I mean, they just play these clips one state solution, warm, fuzzy feeling about over. the Holocaust. Over. Over. You know, they they beat the Democrats down with this, and President Trump takes them to the cleaners in November 2020. Do you think then Chuck Schumer, who's a Jew, by the way, a practicing Jew, interesting enough, mm-hmm. he's silent, he's silent all this, on all this, of course, but people like Schumer and Pelosi, if they just get taken behind the woodshed in 2020, do you think they might grow the cojones then to to stand up for some semblance of morality in their party? Or will they just double down? I Who mean, knows, they could just double, man, they could just double down. Hey, we lost because Biden wasn't communist enough. I mean, do they, are they just going to double down? Or would like a crushing defeat, like a, a, you know, losing 36 states, 35 states, would that be enough to shake these people out of their slumber? You know what? I don't think so. You know why? I don't either. I don't because either. Because this this was the diagnosis. This was the diagnosis in 2016, right? This was the as we as we got to late 2016, we got to going into 2017. There was you had like Tim Ryan and Seth Moulton and a few people in the House Democratic Caucus who were not from deep blue coastal urban areas who were raising the issue about like, look, we know why we lost. We completely lost touch with everyone who doesn't live within 50 feet of a Starbucks, right? We need to figure out how to get in touch with these people. And they railed and they railed and they tried to challenge Pelosi and all this other stuff. And where do we find the Democratic House caucus two years later, but Nancy Pelosi running running interference for Ilhan Omar. And now we've got, we're going to have a whole thing. We're going to have Holocaust gate where Rashida Tlaib and we should see, expect no different than what we saw with, with Omar's comments. (laughs) It's just, it's just astounding, man. It's just astounding. That's the lesson they take. I mean, they get beaten in, in 2016, and they they double down on socialism. They defend anti-Semitism. It's like it, but, it is Green New Deal. Everything, what, that that you like you're right. Tim Ryan is sitting there in Youngstown, Ohio. Like, dude, like what are you, <laughs> like what are you doing? You know, like man, if they would have ran, like I'm not trying to give the Democrats any ideas. I'm not a Democrat. I do not like the Democratic Party. But if they ran Joe Manchin, they'd win 44 states. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, honest to God, they would. Maybe. But, like, at the same time, you look at, like, you, you look at how well people respond to a, to a really to a really unapologetically uh, conservative in most ways message like Trump, like Trump sold during the election, right? And, you know, the other side of that coin is the, you know, 
the guy was unapologetic. He, he promised to bring the fight that, that people in the in the conservative and libertarian grassroots have been arguing, clamoring for since the Tea Party movement started. Yep. And he starts doing that. But where where in the hell does he find ground support in Congress? I mean, you get it. I don't know, man. You got I don't know. You've got McConnell running up the scoreboard on nominations, which is what he wanted to do anyway. And now you got everybody in the Republican caucus is a lot more righteous because they're in the minority. We'll see how that holds up when that changes ever again. But it's like everyone learns the wrong lessons. That's what I can tell you. People ask, what's it like covering Congress? You're watching 535 people learn the wrong lessons on a weekly basis. It's astounding. I, I've worked on campaigns. I know a lot of people that have been higher up in, in major campaigns, and they're all really, really smart guys. And it seems like when they, uh, on both sides of the aisle, and then when they, you know, get their first paycheck on a campaign, they just become completely retarded and just take the campaign in the wrong direction. Like, it's, it's astounding. Some oh, of the brightest people gosh. I know are these campaign types, these politicos, and they just, for some reason, don't get it when they're trying to advise their candidates. Like, it is, it's a joke. It, it makes absolutely no sense to me. Neither side is immune either. But uh, no, it, it, make, it makes absolutely no sense. There's... Um, there's a lot of bromide in this city. There's a lot of bromide that, that otherwise very smart people end up drinking a lot. And when they drink a lot of that bromide and they get their first paycheck for doing so, they come up with a lot of piss poor ideas. <laughs> oh, man. And it's only it's only May 2019. So be prepared for a hell of a lot more <laughs> piss poor ideas in the next year and a half. My I goodness. just want to remind everybody that at this point in the 2016 election, so like the like like primary announcements 2015, Donald Trump was still a month away from announcing. Yeah, and you remember the the front runner at this point for the Republicans. It was still Jeb, wasn't it? It was Jeb, and you know who was number two in the polls? You you probably won't even guess this, Nate. There's no way it was Jindal. Nope, Scott um, fucking Walker. That's right. <laughs> oh my gosh! I feel like you just like you just some. Did some some like Vulcan like memory unlock. Know, oh my I gosh, know. that's right, Scott Walker. I know, I know. It was Jeb Bush was was polling in like the 30s. Scott Walker was in the 20s. Rand Paul was third behind those two. Can you believe that? That's where we are. So anything can happen. But since we're talking about polling, uh, let's. I want to talk about a couple new polls that came out of South Carolina this week. And obviously, South Carolina is wildly important. Essentially, I talked about this on, on the last podcast last Wednesday. Essentially, to be the nominee. You need to win Iowa, New Hampshire, or South Carolina. If you don't, you basically have to sweep Super Tuesday, right? You got to win like Ohio and Florida, something like that. And it's not likely because you can't be two places at once. But so South Carolina, wildly important. It's these polls are very bad news for everybody not named Joe Biden <laughs> because Biden's already way up in Iowa, and he's even up in New Hampshire, which uh, Bernie Sanders blew out Hillary Clinton in in New Hampshire. Last yeah. time around, so it's it's astounding that Biden is even up in New Hampshire, which is you know next door to Vermont. Uh, that seems crazy to me, but I mean I guess it's you know close in proximity to Delaware as well. But um, Biden is polling at thirty eight percent among white voters in uh, white Democrats in South Carolina, fifty eight percent among Black Democrats in South Carolina, and the majority of uh, Democratic primary voters in South Carolina are Black. Um, Bernie Sanders is really mm -hmm. fading. Another uh, another guy whose numbers just jumped out at me, Pete Buttigieg, who uh, seems like he may have peaked in, in recent weeks, but he's polling at 18% in second place in South Carolina among whites. He's polling at 0%. 0% among registered black voters in South Carolina. Zero. 
winning South Carolina is basically his only path to the nomination, and I would argue that Cory Booker and Kamala Harris's only path to the nomination is winning South Carolina as well, and they're both in single digits. So, I don't know, man. If these numbers, and these numbers to this extreme aren't going to hold, but even if they hold somewhat similar to this, it might be an early night, man. Biden might wrap this up by the end of the year. <clears throat> I, I, I definitely think it's going to be an early night in South Carolina. I look, they like Biden gets to has the benefit of tapping into all the old Hillary and Obama grassroots networks, especially down south. Those, and especially my home state of South Carolina. Those networks are key. Those connections are key in that primary. Right. Um, talk to, I, I, I just don't see, first off, I, it doesn't surprise me at all that Buttigieg has zero. And what exactly is his appeal uh, to a South Carolina voter who's not, who is not some, you know, like progressive Christian college student at the College of Charleston or USC who's trying to still define themselves is like nominally Christian, but while, you know, embracing all this liberal ideology, right? Like that's, if you're trying to win, you, if you're trying to win the South Carolina Democratic primary, you're going to need more than like religiously confused liberals on college campuses. <laughs> uh, and I think that's like being a South Carolinian, I think that's the extent of his appeal in my home state. Um, and yeah, look, Biden's got charisma and he's been there before. He's, well, he hasn't won there in a general before, but he's, he's, he, he's got, name recognition he's got all this other stuff he's he's trusted by a lot of folks um i, I think this is going to be i think south carolina is probably going to be an easy cleanup for biden um do you i, agree, I really think do you agree with my this, assessment that if biden which he will win south carolina but when he wins <laughs> south carolina that that it basically eliminates any path for especially the, the two black candidates booker and harris and then somebody like pete Buttigieg as well i, I don't see another path i can easily like, Easily see Harris, Buttigieg getting out after South Carolina. Like, I, Kamala uh, Harris isn't going to win New Hampshire. She's not going to win Iowa. Like her only shot, South Carolina, and she's California. Yeah, it's tough. When is how much longer is the California primary after I, South Carolina? It's it's after Super Tuesday. I wrote about it like two weeks ago. I think it's it's in it's in it is a Super Tuesday vote. It's it's after Super Tuesday. It? I think Booker's I think Booker's out after Super Tuesday if he doesn't get the numbers he likes. I mean, I Booker was out. Like, Booker was out last September after Spartacus, but I mean, he doesn't. Well, know that obviously, yet, but, yeah. he was out at that point, but I think <laughs> he actually makes it official after Super Tuesday. Right, right. Uh, but yes, thing, I wrote in, about this. In, in my mind, the only thing that can take Biden down at this point, I don't think Bernie Sanders is gonna. He has a, a base of support, obviously the the communist base, but I don't see him appealing to enough people. I think the only way someone else, like a Harris or, or somebody else, could ever catch Biden is if. Look, and I'm not like I, I mentioned this last week. I'm not playing armchair physician or anything like that. And I'm not diagnosing Joe Biden with anything. But we've all noticed he's slowed down mentally a little bit. I mean, he's not the same guy from even a few years ago. He seems to get confused a lot. There's the whole China thing, like the mountains in the east or the west and the ocean and where am I? And yeah, he's, I? he's getting a little so, so if he if he gets on a debate stage and forgets to wear pants or something like that I, that that would take him down but short of that i just don't see any other candidate i, I don't see I, I think we we overestimated the field right like i think a guy like ben shapiro said um like months ago you know 
Joe Biden's first day on the campaign trail is going to be his best day because he's a gaffe machine. He's not that articulate. He smells women's hair and all of this, the plagiarism stuff in the 80s. And that's all true. But I think somebody like Ben Shapiro overestimated the rest of these candidates because they're all terrible. They're all worse than Biden. So, yes, like Biden is horrible on the campaign trail. But the rest of them are worse. They're somehow worse. So I think it's we didn't underestimate Biden. We just overestimated everybody else. Yeah. I, I as you say that, I'm reminded of watching all the Hillary gaffes and the. I remember when I remember when Hillary's health on the campaign trail went from item of speculation to legitimate political concern, especially the September 11 collapse. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I they they very could. I mean, like, look, then the, the factor are all there to do it again right it's it's an establishment democrat who has you know who has a relationship with that you know across all aisles and the party and has you know has been a name has been a household name for decades and blah 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 and the downside of that you know they're one of the few democrats in the field who actually you know have the cross-party appeal to appeal to everybody in the united states uh and to get it out of the you know and once again the only people who have the appeal are apparently these old establishment figures who are who are very realistically going to run into health problems or just be gaff prone on the on the national stage this is this is the bench problem that the democratic party currently has i uh i i've kind of debated this point with it with a couple people and i get a lot of disagreement on this but um i think we we all expected biden to do well among minorities because he was president obama's vp for eight years you know he's kind of that just every man uncle joe kind of guy which appeals to minority voters no one else, no other candidate, not even Kamala Harris, is even making a dent. Even in, in even in the black community, it's astounding. I mean, almost sixty percent in South Carolina of minorities going for Biden. I mean, that is a, that's ridiculous. That is a ridiculous number. And I, I just made the case last week on the podcast. Look, I've never seen a black guy with a Che Guevara T-shirt. I haven't. I mean, the, the socialists are a bunch of blue-haired, rich, white college kids. In California and New York. I mean, that's where the yep. socialists are. So I, I guess it may, I mean, I've, I've never seen a Mexican guy with a with a Fidel Castro shirt on, man. No, I've never seen it. Maybe that individual is out there somewhere. Um, you know, tweet at me if you find him. Picks or it didn't happen. But see, I just don't think that the the socialist base of the Democratic Party, they, they claim to be the party of immigrants and the party of minorities and, and stuff like that. I, I don't think the socialism message is appealing to minorities the way it does to these rich white kids on college campuses, the way yep. that, you know, the the socialist leaders in the Democratic Party thought it would. And I think that's why a lot of them are running to Joe Biden, because he's he, he's no moderate. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's not a moderate, but at least he's not an open communist. So right. I think they just kind of misjudged. They, they misjudged their own base. Like, I don't think minority voters want socialism the same way the, the nerdy little white kids do. I mean, when you look at... <sighs> It's socialism's an issue. I think you're definitely right there. And another thing that I, th- I think where where the Democratic Party repeatedly overplays its hand to its own demo- to its own demographics is on social issues. Look, if like go into any go into any Spanish speaking mass in the country and talk to Latino voters there. Go to any black church on Sunday morning. You are not going to find a bunch of in most cases. You're not going to find a bunch of crazy abortion extremists who want right. to see you know, like transgenderism codified into the civil rights. Rights Act, right? right. That is right. that is more that is more like again wealthy white liberals who live within fifty feet of a Starbucks. This right. is the same thing, you know. Right. I, I think they way overplay, and I, I don't. That bill hasn't come due yet. It hasn't come due yet, but it's coming due at some point in the future. 
Right. I mean, go to a Cuban neighborhood in Miami and ask them about socialism. Go to yeah any Latino mass in the country and ask them about Ralph Northam's infanticide comments. You know, you're not going to get the response like, that these Democrats are looking rally. for. <laughs> go to any pro-life rally and see how many pictures of the Virgin of Guadalupe you'll find. Like, I mean, seriously. <laughs> It is amazing, man. I, it, it's watching these people just misread their own base is absolutely hilarious. Yeah. And, I mean, Republicans do it a lot too. Republicans misread oh, yeah. their base a lot, but hey, watching the Democrats do it for a change is it's just hilarious. So one more thing before I let you go, Nate. You wrote a piece this morning. Um, I haven't got a chance to read it yet because it was I think it was right before we started recording. But um, yeah, regarding Attorney General Bill Barr and all this nonsense with with Representative Nadler and and all this. So catch us up. What what is going on with the Bill Barr situation? My only contribution to the to this part of the conversation is this. I don't think the Democrats' whole narrative that Bill Barr is the boogeyman is going to work. Like, this guy's, like, one of the most honest brokers in Washington, D.C. He's been around since the 80s. Everyone knows him. Everybody likes him. By all accounts, he's an honest man and a good attorney general. Why Bill Barr? Like, why him? Like, how is he Because he's the Darth guy Vader? in the chair. <laughs> he's the guy with his name on the desk right now, dude. Like, look— if you watch his confirmation hearing, he made it very clear in his opening remarks, like, look, I've already done this job. This is going to be my last job. I come into this with absolutely no considerations for any political office in the future. I don't really care. Um, and he comes Love in and they're, they're, they're doing everything they can do. you know. But let me back up for everyone who's watched the drama about this Mueller report subpoena contempt uh, proceeding stuff. What Nadler said over the weekend was reported by the Washington Times uh, yesterday was that he said, oh, well, I never intended to subpoena uh, the grand jury information in the full Mueller report with the. Oh, that's weird. Because subpoenaing the grand jury information is a weird way to not subpoena the grand jury information. Right. The subpoena said the subpoena was pretty direct. It said the entire unredacted report and all underlying evidence, which included secret grand jury information subject to protections under the federal rules of criminal procedure. That's right. what this debate has been over for the last month and a freaking half. They're super, not they're releasing... super butthurt that, that Bill Barr won't break the law. They're so upset and that so he won't last... break the law. Exactly. And that's, that's been the debate. That was the reason they had to try to negotiate. That's the reason everything else. And I break all of this down. Right. And so last week, the House Judiciary Committee adopts a, adopts Matt Gates's amendment into their final uh, contempt resolution saying that nothing in there, nothing in the report says that he had to break the law or violate criminal procedure Rule 6E, blah, blah, blah. Really? Because that was literally, that was what the entire fight was over. If that's not what you wanted to go to the mattresses on, then you should have actually negotiated in good faith to find a way around this. But it's it's not about negotiating in good faith. It's not about performing legitimate oversight in, in compliance with national security concerns and grand jury rules and everything else. It's about the headlines. And as long as they can continue pulling this thing out and, and moving forward on speculation about whether William Barr is going to be arrested and all this other garbage. They can they keep better, getting they, headlines. They have a better shot at getting Bill Barr pregnant than arresting him, I'd say, in my estimation. But uh, look, <laughs> if you had to guess, how long can the Democrats keep this up? Like, I, I know Twitter leftists. Long as they have to. Like, Twitter leftists really don't like Bill Barr, but do you think your average Democratic voter, one, cares who Bill Barr is? even knows that Bill Barr is the attorney general or is going to calculate any of this into whether or not they go vote in a primary or vote in a general. Like, I, look, I, I just think they're misplaying no. this man, like trying to make big Bill Barr, your, your big bad guy. Like this is like, 
how 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 is this going to stick? Like, it seems like such a like we're talking about political miscalculations. I think this is a huge political miscalculation. I did one. Bill Barr's a hell of a lot smarter than any of these people questioning him. Like watching those those hearings. I mean, he's got 60 IQ points on all these Democrats in office. Like it was, they were making absolute fools of themselves. So I guess keep attacking him. He can keep punching you in the face, I suppose, if that's what you want. But do they think this is going to move the needle for them? Like, I just don't see it, man. I do not see how this is going to work out in the Democrats' favor at all. What are they going to do? I mean, that's my question. They ran on the promise. So House Democrats, Democrats got the House back because they promised to give President Trump a never-ending proctology exam, right? That, that, was, that was the promise. And what else do they have? We've got divided government. The, the, the Senate is not going to take up anything that House Democrats are going to want to put their name on before 2020. They, there's this impulsive move. to they're, they're trying to run up the scoreboard on all these different pet projects that are never going to make – they're never going to pass – they're never going to be taken up in the Senate, never pass the Senate, never go to the desk. The only other thing that you can do to say that you're consistently moving the ball – and to make the case uh, for the next federal election that you want to win is to consistently pass bills that aren't going to go anywhere and never stop giving the president and his administration and members of his family a political proctology exam. That's all you can do. Well, thank God they care about what they've been elected to do, you know, serve <laughs> the country and, and stuff like that. And uh, you obviously cover Capitol Hill. Uh, before I let you go, is there anything to, of note this week? On the docket, um, I'm guessing no. <laughs> but uh, is there anything we should keep our eyes on this week? I mean, like I said, the House Democrats are still moving on a bunch of different bills to say how they think and what they want to do uh, with American policy. And they're they're I mean, the House is a campaign ad right now for 2020. But this week, there's a big health care bill and there's a big transgender bill that they'll be working on. Both of those should be up for final votes on Thursday, or at least that's what I saw in the uh, the um, majority leaders. Run- down for the week this morning the senate still hacking away at nominations they'll file cloture on a, they'll debate and file cloture on another one this afternoon and just keep the train rolling i'm guessing the transgender bill says something along the lines of the next 17 presidents have to be transgendered or something like that a new amendment oh, no it's it's codifying transgenderism and, and sexual orientation in the 1964 civil rights act so we're treating people <laughs> who so treating people who think they are a different sex along the same lines as we treat immutable qualities like race sex and everything else Good luck with that. (laughs) All right. Good luck with that, Democrats. All right, Nate, thanks so much for coming on, man. I hope you'll come back on very soon. Where can everybody check out your stuff? Check out your show over on The Blaze. Read all your stuff. Follow you on Twitter. Keep in touch with you. All of that good stuff. All right. It's probably best just to follow me on Twitter because I'm on The Blaze Conservative Review and Blaze TV. So just follow me at Nate on the Hill, and I'll update you to everything from there. Oh, no, you're supposed to give the people way too much shit to remember. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Everybody follow Nate at Nate on the Hill. He's great. Check out his show at Blaze TV. That's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Wednesday. No gimmicks. (laughs) 